Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me in the studio today is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're joined today also by attorneys Mark Goodman and Mike Trier from the law firm of Lord Bissell & Brook in Chicago, Illinois. Mark Goodman is a partner with the firm who represents insurers and other financial institutions in regulatory, transactional, and corporate matters, including contingent commission investigations. Mike Trier is a partner with broad experience in the insurance industry, including mergers and acquisitions, regulatory disputes, and the structuring of insurance and reinsurance programs. Welcome today, Mark and Mike. Thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, we're happy to participate. Now, recently, there has been increasing momentum at both the federal and state levels to reform the regulation and taxation of the surplus lines insurance market. This is the result of criticisms that the current state system for regulating surplus lines insurance is inconsistent and duplicative and imposes unnecessarily high compliance costs. This issue has gained momentum throughout the summer, and I'm turning it over to Brendan Noonan now for our first question. Okay, uh, Mark, can you tell us about the current federal and state proposals on this topic? Uh, Sure. There's really three proposals that are relevant to our discussion today. First, uh, the National Insurance Act is a federal law that's been introduced in the Senate, Senate 40, in May of this year that would provide for a dual system of federal and state regulation by allowing insurers and producers to elect federal regulation. The bill allows surplus line brokers but not insurers to elect federal regulation and permits only the home state of the insured to tax surplus line transactions involving multi-state risks. It also provides some protection for federally licensed surplus line brokers against duplicative state regulation. The second development is the Non-Admitted and Reinsurance Reform Act. This is a bill that was actually unanimously adopted by the House of Representatives in uh, June of this year. Uh, We'll just call it the Non-Admitted Reform Act. Of the three developments, it's the one that's had the most progress in, in the last year. It has two focuses. First, it prohibits states other than the home state of the insured from taxing a surplus line transaction and defines the home state as the state in which the insured has its principal place of business or or residency if it's an individual. The second thing it does is streamline the regulation of surplus line market by providing that no state can regulate a surplus line transaction except the home state of the insured. As a result, each surplus line placement would be subject to a single set of regulatory requirements, including matters such as required diligence search in the admitted market, required notice to policyholders. And this is really to address the growing concerns you mentioned about the burdens on brokers and insurers and costs that are ultimately borne by consumers of attempting to comply with multiple states' regulation of the surplus line placement. And then the third development is really a reaction to the other two. Although the two federal proposals leave state regulation in place, because they represent a federal foray into insurance regulation, there's been discussion at the NEIC level of coming up with an interstate compact, a surplus line compact. An interstate compact, as way of background, is an agreement, a contract, among the states that decide to join it, and they have the force of law in each state. And like the federal proposals, this surplus line compact would focus the regulation of multi-state surplus line placements in the home state of the insured. But there are some differences between the approach it takes and the approach taken in the Non-Admitted Reform Act. For example, the surplus line compact would allow the compact commission to adopt uniform method of allocating premiums among the states rather than just letting only one state tax the transaction. It would also let the compact commission members adopt a uniform set of standards for the placement of surplus line insurance. However, it still allows states to opt out of those standards, and this opt-out option substantially undermines the compact's promise of uniformity. 
Thank you, Mark. Uh, Mike, uh, why the emphasis now on how surplus lines are regulated? Well, when the various states put the current system of surplus line regulation and taxation in place decades ago, the market was much different than it is today. Back then, surplus line placements largely dealt with single state risks. As a result, surplus line laws and tax rules were originally developed under the assumption that only one state would regulate and tax any surplus line transaction. In this sort of a simpler world, there was only one set of rules for each surplus line transaction that governed the required search of the admitted market, insurer eligibility restrictions, and the applicable filing and record-keeping requirements. On the tax side, it was assumed that only one state would tax the entire premium. The surplus line laws of other states were irrelevant to these single-state transactions and did not add any costs or complications. However, over the past 20 years or so, the number of multi-state surplus line placements have increased dramatically. In reaction to this change in the market, states have been more aggressive in uh, applying their laws and especially their surplus lines tax laws to transactions that cover risks that are only partially located within their borders. On the tax side, a number of states have adopted allocation rules which require that a broker pay taxes on the portion of the premium attributable to the part of the risk that's located within the state. This would be fine if it weren't for the inability of the states to agree on a consistent allocation methodology and the fact that some states continue to expect that 100% of the taxes will be paid to them on surplus line policies negotiated and issued in their states. The result has been a great deal of uncertainty as to how to deal with states' competing demands to tax premiums paid on multi-state surplus line transactions. Similarly, on the regulatory side, when multi-state risks are placed in the surplus line market, several states' rules regarding matters such as searches of the admitted market and eligibility of insurers could conceivably be applied to the same transaction. Brokers commonly face the choice of either making pragmatic decisions as to which rules apply, with all the compliance risks that such choices entail, or attempting to comply with the duplicative and often inconsistent rules of the several states, which add considerably to the cost of the transactions. Ironically, an earlier federal reform effort has exacerbated these problems. The Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which was enacted in 1999 to modernize the regulation of financial services in the U.S., forced the states to permit the licensing of non-resident brokers. Because surplus line brokers can now obtain licenses in multiple states, it's easier for the states to demand that brokers comply with their surplus line laws regardless of where the broker is located. Why are these reform efforts being made now as opposed to a few years ago? It's really hard to say, but support that the optional federal charter legislation has attracted over the last several years may have made the prospect of a federal solution to surplus line reform issues seem more realistic. In turn, the passage in the U.S. House for two years running of versions of the Non-Admitted Reform Act may have prodded those who want to block any federal involvement in insurance regulation to bring out the current compact proposal. Okay, thanks, Mike. Mark, I have a question for you. The efforts to enact federal guidelines and achieve uniformity have had a long history. Are these goals realistic? I think the efforts to achieve uniformity certainly have a long history, though the idea of using federal guidelines to achieve that uniformity is really a more recent development. The industry and regulators have made efforts for many years, really over decades, to both streamline and to make more uniform state regulation and taxation of surplus line transactions. Most of those efforts have been made either on a state-by-state basis or through discussions at NEIC meetings. The goal has been to get the states to agree upon a uniform scheme that would leave the home state of the insured to regulate and tax surplus line transactions. Because states have not been able to agree among themselves to defer to their sister states on such regulation, more recently members of the industry have turned to the idea of adopting federal laws to achieve the uniformity. 
even though the states through the NAIC have been receptive to the concept of letting the federal government set nationwide standards and then let the states implement those standards pursuant to state law, the states, in the case at least of the Non-Admitted Reform Act, seem to prefer an interstate compact approach, which would allow them to retain their regulatory prerogatives and discretion to a greater extent. So I think the goal of uniformity is certainly a realistic goal. It's just a matter of how we're going to get there through either a federal system to force it upon the states if the states cannot agree to it themselves. Okay, uh, uh, Mike, what obstacles are there to effective reform? Well, I think Mark has alluded to uh, one of the major ones. Opposition to federal reform of surplus line regulations certainly could come from the states, which may resist any surrender of their regulatory and taxing authority. Although the Non-Remitted Reform Act would not result in federal regulation of surplus lines insurance, it would limit state authority to regulate and tax surplus line transactions to the so-called home state of the insured. Other states would be entirely cut out of the regulation of multi-state surplus lines transactions and would only share in the taxes for such transactions if the states managed to agree on a methodology to allocate the taxes that would be paid to the insured's home state. And even if the states are faced with a potential loss of tax revenue as a result of the adoption of the Non-Admitted Reform Act, it's anybody's guess whether they will be able to agree on a tax allocation methodology since any methodology could result in some states collecting less surplus line taxes than they do now. In addition, concerns have been raised that limiting regulation on the surplus line market to the home state of the insured may result in looser regulation of that market than uh, some states would prefer. For example, it's been pointed out that some states apply stricter insurer eligibility standards than would be permitted under the uniform standards mandated by the Non-Admitted Reform Act. Another possible source of opposition to the Non-Admitted Reform Act could be surplus line brokers who are located outside of the large commercial states. Since the Act considers the home state of a commercial insured to be its principal place of business, the home states of such commercial insureds are more likely to be located in the large commercial states. Consequently, brokers located in smaller states may fear that their state's surplus line laws, and thus their expertise, would become largely irrelevant to the placement of multi-state commercial risks. Thus, they may fear that adoption of the Non-Admitted Reform Act would adversely affect their business. While it remains to be seen how much traction these sorts of concerns over the Non-Admitted Reform Act may gain, it's clear that the obstacles in the way of the adoption of an effective surplus line compact are very formidable. Unlike the federal act, which would be effective in all states as soon as it becomes law, a compact is only effective in those states where it has been adopted. Thus, in order for the surplus line compact to be effective in all 50 states, it must be adopted by 50 state legislatures. Getting 50 state legislatures to agree on even a non-controversial piece of legislation would be quite difficult. And getting all of them, or even a majority of them, to adopt a surplus line compact that would involve the surrender of some of their regulatory and taxing authority to other states may prove to be impossible. The uh, proposed surplus line compact mandates that the compacting states agree on a method of allocating surplus line taxes, but states are being asked to adopt the compact law without knowing what allocation factors the compact commission will ultimately adopt. States can be expected to be very reluctant to surrender control over their tax revenues in this way. Mike, what kind of expenses are involved in efforts to standardize? Well, because the Non-Admitted Reform Act operates by restricting the reach of existing state regulation of surplus line placements rather than by creating a new federal bureaucracy to regulate the surplus line industry, 
it shouldn't generate any new compliance costs. Instead, by eliminating duplicative and inconsistent regulation, it's expected to result in considerable savings for the industry. However, although the federal legislation itself is expected to save costs, it permits the states to enter into a compact for the allocation of surplus line taxes, and this compact is a possible source of additional costs. The proposed surplus line compact would establish an interstate compact commission, which would formulate the compact's rules and would generally be responsible for overseeing its operations. The compact law also contemplates the creation of a clearinghouse that would process the information necessary to affect surplus line tax allocations in accordance with the methodology adopted by the compact commission. The current draft of the compact provides that all the costs of the commission and the clearinghouse would be borne by insureds in the form of fees assessed on each transaction processed by the clearinghouse. Thus, insureds would only benefit economically from the increased efficiencies resulting from market reforms to the extent that insurers reduce premiums in amounts greater than these new assessment costs. Mark, how do you think this will unfold for the rest of the year? Well, I'm not a Washington insider, so it's difficult to say with any sense of inside knowledge what are the chances of advancement of the either the National Insurance Act or the Non-Admitted Insurer Reform Act this year, given political situations with focuses on the war and upcoming presidential election, even though it's over a year away. It seems as if the focus of Congress may be elsewhere. I think it is likely, though, that these bills and the concepts underlying them will continue to be the focus of discussion and debate on the federal level. What to me will be interesting to see is whether development of the interstate compact idea, which as Mike has pointed out, depends on the drafting of a workable tax allocation scheme, will progress this year. It seems likely that the development of the interstate compact has only progressed to date because of the threat or the specter of federal laws advancing. And what we remains to be seen is if the states and the NEIC have the desire and the will to continue to push the interstate compact absent movement on the federal laws. Okay, Mark, thank you very much. Uh, you've listened to today's guests, Mark Goodman and Mike Trier from the law firm of Lord Bissell & Brook in Chicago, Illinois. Thanks as well to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to today's producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this podcast, go to podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future insurance law podcast, please email us at lawpodcast at ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance Insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 